0: I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. We read it aloud together at the beginning of uh, our message. And as you stand, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, you're going to go to school on love today. And then I think we have this on the screen. Um, Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Yeah, uh, Revelation chapter 2, I'll be reading this aloud. You can follow along. Uh, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and endured hardships for my name and, name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for standing. Uh, well, we're, we're starting a, a new series as we're working our way through uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going all the way back to the beginning of the book of Revelation to the letters that, uh, that John wrote for uh, seven churches in was known as ancient Turkey. And um, I, I wanted to start today because we're going to talk about, we're titled the series The Imperfect Church. I want to start today uh, in a way I never do uh, by telling a joke. Now, I don't ever tell jokes because I think they're kind of cheesy and I'm not really good at it. Um, but this kind of gets us there. So if you laugh, great. If you don't, I don't really care. Um, uh, so there was a man and uh, he was stranded on an island. And um, he was there for many years and was somehow able to build things while he was on the island. And when he was rescued, uh, a man came up to him and said, Hey, I I noticed that there are three buildings here on the island. He said, Tell me about them. What's this one right here? He says, The man says, Oh, this is my house. This is where I live. Oh, interesting. Well, What's this building over here? Oh, that's, uh, I'm a religious person. That's the church that I attend. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay, so what is this house? What is this building over here? And he says, "Uh, That's the church I used to attend. There you go. I'm sorry. I, there you go. That's the joke, right? I got better than that. What, what's the point? <laughs> the point I'm trying to make uh, by telling that terrible joke is that the church is imperfect. It's imperfect. Uh, it doesn't always get things right. Now, I, I, I just kind of made a, a mental a list in, in my mind uh, as I was preparing the message of all the churches that I've been a part of over my life, either grew up in, my dad was a pastor, or that I've served on staff as a pastor. And and uh, so I went all the way back. Here's a picture of the very first church I remember. We we tend to associate church with a building. Uh, what we mean when we say the word church is the people who meet in that building. So, But we just in our minds associate the building, right? But this is the first place I remember. This is in rural Malawi. This is not far from where you built a water well uh, for the people of Malawi at the Christmas offering last year. But we lived in that house. You can kind of see there in the foreground. And then I remember running up that hill. That was the church building where the people met. And you can't see the buildings of the, the Bible college where um, pastors would come to be trained. My mom and dad worked trained train pastors in, in um, Malawi. Africa, and this is, the, this is some of the congregation uh, that I remember uh, playing with and running up the hill with, and um, this was a long time ago, many moons ago, uh, but what you don't know about that is that, well, I, I'm not sure if the person is in this picture or not, but a, a national pastor, a Malawian, um, was having an affair, wanted to cover it up, and in covering up his own wrongdoing, Uh, blamed all kinds of people. My dad really won't even talk about the story, but he was kind of implicated in in what the guy tried to say happened in in order to cover up his own ugliness. I mean, that's ugly. What an imperfect place. Uh, I I found a picture of the second place, second building that the church met in that I remember in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I've heard told some stories. I think we have it on the screen here. Do we have that? Oh, there we go. Thank you. Uh, so this is uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. I've told you some stories about how I rode my bike and slipped and fell. I've told stories about that before. Uh, but this is the building. Now it's a Methodist church. Then it was the Nazarene church. And um, my, the, the church that met in that building was, uh, when, I was a, when I was a young boy and all the way through elementary school. And, but, I, but I thought about the people in that church. And I thought about how the teenagers in that church would make fun of me when I was a kid and how I hated that. And some other things happened there that weren't uh, great but I just I made a list I just I have it written here uh, but I just made a list of all the places that I've been and in every single place I could tell you a story about something that didn't go right with the people there every single I, I was kind of surprised by that because I thought I'd look back and go oh that was the perfect church uh Missouri and Kansas and Virginia And then now I'm a part of this really great church that's in Portage, Indiana. And guess what I know about it? It's not perfect either. Now, why is the church imperfect? I will give it to you in one word. Do you know what the word is? People. (laughs) When pastors get together and we talk about, you know, talk about work, when we talk shop, uh, there's just a funny line. We all say to each other, the church would be great if it weren't for the people. Because uh, every church has, is full of, of, of really, honestly, weird people. Um, there, there are, I, I call them um, extra grace required people. Now listen, I'm just going to tell you the truth, okay? We love you, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, extra grace-required people are people who just need more grace to deal with. And extra grace-required people are when you're in a small group, they kind of monopolize the conversation or they don't quite get the social cues and, and they don't quite say the right thing or they say the wrong thing. Now, if you're, if you're going, like, I, can, I know who that person ah, I know who the extra grace-required people are. If you don't know who those people are, guess what? It's you. You're, it's you. We're talking about you. Now, we love you, but it's you. Okay? All right? So you're welcome. Always. But you're it. Uh, But the church is imperfect. People get sideways with each other and they have different opinions about things and how things ought to be done and politics. And and, and we get sideways with each other. And there are people who don't want to give up control. And there are people who, out of their hurt, hurt other people. The church is imperfect. So here's what I want to do in this series as we look at this series of letters that John wrote in the book of Revelation as we're working our way through this over the summer, and this the summer's coming to a close, here's what I hope happens, okay? Two things. I want to lower your expectations, and I want to raise your vision. You get that? I want to lower your expectations, and I want to raise your vision. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Uh, When couples come for uh, premarital counseling, whenever anybody wants to be married and and they want to be married by anybody who's a pastor on a staff, we require that they go through a premarital coaching. All the statistics say if you do that, you have a much higher percentage chance of your marriage making it because you just talk about the issues on the front end of your relationship. And so we have people take this inventory and then we sit down and we talk about this inventory and all the things that you're going to encounter in your marriage. And uh, one of the things I always, I, give my, I have a little stump speech that I give uh, to every couple and I say this is something that you need to settle right now and figure this out right now because if you figure this out right now, this will pay you dividends for the rest of your relationship. And the thing that you need to figure out right now is you need to get rid of, uh, however you can do this, get rid of your expectations of each other. Have no expectations. It seems so counterintuitive. But let me explain what I mean. I always use this dumb illustration of the toothpaste. And um, I always say that in, in a relationship, there's almost always one person who squeezes the toothpaste from the bottom, as God intended, from the beginning of time and all of eternity, <laughs> right? This is how God meant it, right? And then there's that other weird, crazy person who's right in the middle and just squeezes it on the, and messes everything up, and they don't put the cap back on. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm saying? And, and the person, invariably, it's the person who squeezes from the bottom who's mad at the person who squeezes in the middle because the person in the middle doesn't really care. And, and so the person that squeezes from the bottom tells the person that squeezes in the middle, hey, what is wrong with you? Get your act together and start squeezing it the way you're supposed to do it. And so out of love, the person who squeezes from the middle will try really, really hard to meet their expectation. But expectations are a zero-sum game. In other words, the, the person who has, uh, who says I squeeze from uh, the, the bottom, th- that's zero for them. Like that's what everybody's supposed to do. And the person who does not is all the way down at like negative 50. And so it's just a force of habit. They don't do it out of meanness or spite, though sometimes they might. Uh, but they, 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 they try so hard because they're not thinking about it. They're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. And then finally the day comes that for a whole week, they've squeezed from the bottom, and they, they go to the other spouse, who, and they say to them, H- have, you, have, you, have you noticed <laughs> what I have done here for this last week? Am I not fantastic? And the person who squeezes from the bottom is like, what, do you want a cookie? What you want a star? Why? Because it's a zero-sum game, because that's what they thought they should be doing all along. And it's the expectations that breed frustration. And it is absolutely no different in the church. It's why people get hurt. You ever heard someone say, the church hurt me? Or I have church hurt? Have you ever heard that? Well, the reason is, is because you have expectations, And especially people when they come into the church. I mean, the sinless, perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, is the leader of the church. And so we assume some of that perfection ought to bleed onto his people and his leaders. And so we we come in with these super high expectations. Our expectations rise above normal when we're around the church. And what happens over and over again, it's happened in my life, and I've watched it happen in other people's life, is they are instead let down by very flawed people. And they're hurt. And so I just say that it's better to have no expectations. Now, we have a phrase we say around here, you probably heard me say it or someone else say it, that the church is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. You've heard us say that? What we mean is you can come in and be really broken, a hospital. You don't have to have it all together and be the perfect finished product, a museum, Right? But we, we really mean this. We really mean that you can come with all of your brokenness. I love that about our church. That's why we, the name is Real Life, because you can be real. You can just bring your junk. It's okay. And we all want this, but here's, here's the rub. Here's where my expectations get in and mess everything up. Is what we basically communicate to other people as we say, now I want you to let me be in the hospital, but you had better be in the museum and Perfect. In other words, I can be as jacked up as I want to be, and you need to accept me for my jacked upness and understand that I'm just not a perfect human being, but why in the world are you jacking me up? What's wrong with you? So we have in our heads, in our, our idea, is, yeah, the church is a hospital for sinners. But in our practice, we treat other people like they're in a museum for saints, and we don't give them the same grace that we want extended to us. So my suggestion through this series is that you would lower your expectations and recognize that everyone that is here with you, they're they're also sinful people with a past and a perspective. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around right now. Just look around. People right and left, front and back. All of these people are recovering. They're all recovering. So be patient with them. They're different than you. They may offend you. They may hurt you. But lower your expectations have no expectations so at the same time though i want to raise your vision and the vision i'd like to i'd like to set all of our sights on is that we our vision would be raised to jesus who loves sinful people jesus brings sinful people together in fact the church is the family of people that jesus has rescued the, the where the word church comes from in the original greek language is as uh, two words put together and it's called ecclesia and it means to be called out or to be gathered together. Jesus calls out of the mass of humanity the people who realize they're broken and need a savior and he puts them together in a family and says, now you're all together. Um, I'll give you an image. I'll give you an image for this. Um, the church is the pound and not the pet store. Uh, when we go down uh, 30 to Merrillville, uh, with the kids in the car, invariably one of my kids, when we we're driving past the Best Buy, will look over to the right and say, Can we go to the pet store? And when we go to the pet store, we walk in, and you know how the pet store is, right? When you go in there, all the animals are perfect. And um, all of the dogs and cats, they have AKC and and everything's wonderful and everything's put together and there's nothing wrong with the dogs or the cats or the parakeets or the ferrets. They can show you certifications that say everything is great and then you say, and how much is that one? And they say $6 million and you go, thank you very much, but I'll pass. (laughs) You You know what I'm talking about? The church is not the pet store where everybody has it all together. The church is the pound. Because what happens is you go to the pound, you look at the, you go in there and you see the same cute little dogs, but you know what you do every time you see it? You're thinking in the back of your mind, you're like, well, that dog's got some issues. messing <laughs> 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 a lot wrong with that. How much is it? $75. I'll take it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the, 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 the church, Jesus gathers, he gathers the pound and, and says, we're, we're all in the pound with issues. We're not the pet store who has it all together. Do you see what I'm saying? And so Jesus even said it to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I'm going to build my church, uh, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The word there, again, called out ones. I'm going to build my called out ones, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Because when Jesus saves people, he puts them into his family. That's you. That's the person sitting behind you. It's a family. And you know what? In your family, you've got crazy Uncle Carl. And crazy Uncle Carl, you may not really like crazy Uncle Carl. A crazy Uncle Carl might be entertaining when you get to for family get-togethers. But you don't go, he's not my uncle. You go, he's my crazy Uncle Carl. He's a part of my family, whether I like it or not. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. For you to reject... Them means that you reject what Jesus is creating, which is his church. The, ch- the church is Jesus' idea. He's the one that put us all together. Now, you may say, okay, well, that opens the door for people to hurt me, and then people, I can get hurt, and, and that's what's going to happen. Well, let me give you a filter for that, okay? If you're ever around some kind of spiritual leader of any stripe, and they tell you, you need to do what I say and if you don't do what I say, you're disobeying God. That's a person who's cloaking their choices and their decisions with spirituality, and don't trust that person, okay? But if you're in an environment where we're all admitting that we're broken people in need of a Savior, and none of us is Jesus, and we're all going gonna to do our best, but we're not always going to get it right. If you're in that environment, then it's, it's okay. You can be safe. So we come right here to John, who gives us these letters, and he writes these letters. And the first letter that he writes to these seven churches is the the letter to the church and the Christians in uh, in Ephesus. Now, uh, these seven churches were on basically a postal route, and uh, John, later in his life, uh, before he was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, lived in Ephesus and was one of the leaders of the church in Ephesus, so he's writing back to the church that he's led. And it's very interesting that in all of the letters, and with the exception, I think of one, uh, he quotes the words of Jesus from one of the parables Jesus gave uh, at the end of all of the instructions to the churches, and he says this very interesting phrase in Revelation two seven: "Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches." In other words, he's saying, "Are you listening?" When I want my kids' attention, I, I have this little practice that I do, and I say to them, I say, hey, uh, come here. No, come here. What are you doing? Just put that down. Come here. Come here. No, and I, I have them stand right next to me. Maybe some of you do this. I want you to stand right here, right here. And then they, you know what kids do. They wander around. You finally get them right here. And then I say, look me in the eye. And they do this. (laughs) No, look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. Finally, look me in the eye, and I say, are you listening to what I'm saying to you? I want you to. This is, in essence, what John is saying to us. Are you listening to what Jesus has to say to the church, which is you? And so uh, he writes this letter. Now, it's kind of important that we know a little bit about it, and each week we'll, we'll talk a little bit about where this place was located, and I'll show you some pictures from the archaeological digs of these places, because these were real places. Uh, and, and knowing where they're located helps us understand something, because if this letter had started off, uh, to the angel of the church of Naperville, right, you would make some assumptions, right? Or if it said, to the angel of the church of Coutts, right, you, you would go, okay, I, I kind of get what's going on. In that setting, and Ephesus was a very wealthy city. It was the seat of the Roman governor. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So it would be like Chicago in the United States. Here's some pictures you see. You can go there today uh, to Ephesus, one of the most pre- well-preserved uh, ancient cities uh, from the Roman Empire. And here's a picture of the gate leading into the city. This is 2,000 some odd years later. So you can see kind of the, the glory and the majesty of this beautiful city. Uh, here's the picture of the library. Um, that was facing the south so they get the light coming in from the east and and from the west both in the morning and at night so you could read. Um, Here is the the, what they many consider the largest amphitheater with the exception of the Colosseum in Rome that seated anywhere from 25 to 50,000 people. Uh, This was a, a magnificent wealthy city. And there's the church right there that John's writing to. Now, he says some really weird things, and you've got to understand what he's talking about, because if you go to the end of chapter 1, you can understand. He talks about uh, the person who holds seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. Again, John's writing with very symbolic language. If you haven't been with us for the series, he's using all this symbolism. And uh, chapter 1 tells us that the seven stars are the angels and that the seven lampstands are the churches. In other words, the churches aren't the light. They're the stand for the light. The light's Jesus. This is a metaphor that he's using for us. And then he says, these are the words of him. These are the words of Jesus. And then all the letters in in Ephesus too, he gives these commendations and he gives these congratulations and says, hey, you're doing this right. Way to go. And so he goes through this big long list and he says, I know your work. Now, if you know a little bit about the New Testament, if you don't, uh, it was written, multiple letters were written, and that's what we have as the New Testament to individual churches. And one of those letters was the letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote, to the Christians in Ephesus. So you can go back and read what was written to that church when it began, and then you can also go to Acts 19, which is the Acts of the original followers of Jesus, and see what happened with Paul when he was in Ephesus and he started that church. And, and, and in Ephesus, uh, in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, he says, listen, your God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And he says, and I see them. I see the back-to-school fairs that you host for your community. And I see how you raise money in the Christmas offering. And I see how week in and week out you take care of your neighbors and you make a difference in your I see all that. Way to go. You're doing an awesome job. I, I get it you're doing you're doing a fantastic job. And he says, I see your toil and your patient endurance and that you can't bear with those who do evil and that you've tested the people who call themselves leader and you're you're enduring what's happening. Now, you, you have to know, again, the history of how Ephesus came to be, the church in Ephesus. A guy by the name of Apollos, so you can read about his story in, in Acts chapter 18, he first took the message of Jesus to the Christians and to the people in Ephesus and, and they be, began to follow Jesus and the apostle Paul came along and he said to them, he said, hey, hey when, when you first believed Jesus, did you... Were you baptized with the Holy Spirit? Like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. It's like, I'm going to tell you about the Holy Spirit, all that's available to you through God, that the Holy Spirit can come into your life and guide your life. And and they learned about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesus, um, in addition to being a center of wealth and commerce, was also the place where Diana or Artemis, the the goddess of the the Roman pantheon of gods, had a temple. It was made out of marble. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It gleamed during the day when the sun went off of it. And so it was a place of the occult. Uh, A lot of people were magicians of different stripes, and they were sorcerers, and they had incantations, and you would buy amulets and get protection and go visit someone who would tell you the future. And uh, and, and the people who heard the message of Jesus through the Apostle Paul and the people who were converted to, to Christ, they said, you know what, wait, wait. wait. You know, I, I think being a sorcerer and reading the stars is incompatible with following Jesus, and maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. And so at one point, they burned uh, 50,000 drachmas worth of scrolls, of sorcery scrolls. Now, a drachma is a day's wage. Get, get, get this for a second. They burned 50,000 days' wages worth of stuff. This is the economy of the, of the town. Well, uh, the, the Ephesians believed that Artemis was the protector of Ephesus, and they believed that a statue fell from heaven. We got an, a picture of the, uh, from an archaeological dig of the statue of Artemis. Uh, I think it's going to come up here any second right now. Oh. Maybe no Mm-mm. there we go, okay, there we go thank you uh, there's uh, there 's a statue of Artemis and uh, they they made little copies of this statue that they said fell from heaven, and you could go buy one it would be like a little amulet, a little protection that you would have and and the people who made these made a massive income from them because it was one of the chief sources of income and, and they realized that their their economic uh their economic well-being was at risk and so they said this is this can't happen and and they incited a riot and said this cannot happen and so basically acts 19 says that the whole city rushed into that uh to that theater that you saw and they were chanting for several hours great as artemis of the few just a mob just an absolute mob until the apostle paul was going to go and some friends that he'd made said don't go in there you're going to get killed so what happened as a result of all of this, this is kind of the background of understanding what John's writing to us, they had endured persecution. Can you imagine if you were the people who ruined the economy of the whole town? If because of the message of Jesus, all the mills shut down, how, how, would, we, how would we be doing, right? People would be pretty mad. And so they endured persecution persecution and being polarized and outcasts and people made fun of them and they laughed at them and they called them names and they held steady and john says that jesus says oh i'm so proud of you you held steady because for some of you because you follow jesus your family makes fun of you and people who work with you make fun of you and what i would say to you is hold steady don't give up don't quit jesus is proud of you and then john says that jesus says But, verse four, I have this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Now, this is the, the, there's four different words for love in, in the Greek language that the New Testament was written in. Um, there's a, a friendship kind of love. Uh, there's a brotherly love, Philadelphia. is where we're, the city of brotherly love. Uh, a family kind of love. And then a, the love that he talks about here is agape love. It's self-sacrificial love. It's the best kind of love. It's the kind of love that you want to experience. And he said, that's the love that you originally had at first. And you've lost that. You've somehow let the main thing no longer be the main thing because what God is measuring us on is how loving we are. We're not gonna be measured by God on how much money we have or the experiences we've had or how many likes we have on Instagram. We're not gonna be measured by any of those things. We're gonna be measured by God on the kind of loving person that we are or that we are not. And, and John says, that you've lost that. When I was dating my wife uh, in college at Mid-America, Nazarene uh, College in Olathe, Kansas, we had this uh, bank of uh, mailboxes that you could send mail to other students. And you had a little, there was a little combination lock, and you had a little window on it you could see. And so we could send stuff. And so uh, what I would do is I would send Andrea notes. And uh, every now and again, I would go to 7 across the street, and I would just buy a bunch of candy. And then I would get a poster board, and then I would glue them on, and I would make a message out of them like, you make me snicker. <laughs> I know super cheesy, right? But she loved it and she married me. It worked, right? So I would and I would kind of roll it all up and I would stick it in there and she would get it, and she'd be like, You sent me the candy. <laughs> now ask me how many times I have done that since we have been married. <laughs> uh, He's kind of talking about it like that, like you've lost your first love and you're not doing those things you did at first. Not not really talking about that. He's more saying it along the lines of, you know, you're married now and you loved each other in the beginning with this deep, undying love, and now you're just going through the motions. I mean, you pay the bills and, and you work and you make sure everything's taken care of, but you don't really love each other. You've, you've lost that, and that's the main thing. And he says, so what you need to do is that you need to repent and you need to do the works that you did at first. Because the Apostle Paul says in in very famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of his letters, uh, the, the, the letter on love, he says, listen, if you give everything that you possess to the poor and you have all knowledge and you know all mysteries and you know the Bible from the front cover to the back and you can explain every question in it, but you don't have love, then you're Nothing. So Jesus says to us that then we have to change our mind. We have to repent and do what we did at first. Because the main thing has to be the main thing, and the main thing is whether or not we're able to love. Now, here's, here's why I think the church is so important and why Jesus brings us all together, is because the church is the laboratory for love. It's where we learn to be loved, and then it's where we learn to love. Love. Now that metaphor is actually really important because do do you remember in in high school or in high school right now you you have labs and you have the little thing with the Bunsen burner? You you know what I'm talking about? And you get a lab partner and you would do some kind of scientific experiment in the lab and if you didn't stay in the lab then you didn't get the learning. You know what I'm talking about? Like you would stay in the lab and then you would dissect a frog and so you would know what the insides of a frog look like. But if you didn't stay in the lab you wouldn't learn that thing, right? The metaphor is really important because the church is not a place where you go to experience love. Some people come in like, oh, such a loving environment, it's so great. And then they leave and go back to the rest of their life. The church is not a store where you go purchase love. The church is a laboratory where you learn to love. And if you don't stay in the lab, you don't do the learning. So let me give you, in the time remaining, let me give you three ways that you can do that, okay? Um, Here's the first thing, is that you have to let God love you. Just say that out loud with me. Let God love you. Make it personal. Let God love me. Say that. Let God love me. I I was thinking about this and praying about this, and and there's all kinds of directions we could go with this, because you cannot give what you do not have. You know that, right? It's very hard to love someone else unless you've experienced love yourself. So, it all starts with knowing that God loved you. And and the things that came to me as I, I prepared the message is listen, you need to understand that God forgives you. That because of Jesus on the cross and how he paid for the sins of all humanity, that our past can be forgiven, and now we have a leader for our future. And that your past can be completely forgiven. But here's what I find people do they say, well, I've done so many terrible things. How could God ever forgive me? And I I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I I know God says he forgives me, but I can't forgive me. And there's honestly inside of that a great deal of pride that says, okay, I know God has this opinion of me, but my opinion is up here, and my opinion matters more than God. And so we don't accept the forgiveness because if God forgives you, guess what? You can forgive you. The second, second part of that would be that learning that God accepts you. When we talk about the cross, one of the ways to think about the cross is that it's a bridge between us and God. God comes to us and says, I, I know you can't make the gap up between you and me, and I come myself as a baby, and I live the life that you should have lived, and I died the death you should have died, to make a way for you to be with me. I make the bridge myself from you to me, and I give you acceptance as a gift I love how Brennan Manning says that you have to learn to accept your acceptance. Because unless you know you're forgiven and that you're accepted, then it's really hard to forgive someone else or accept them. You you know that, right? Uh, The second thing then is that you need to actually love God. Someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus of all the commandments in what we have as the Old Testament, what is the greatest? And they were referring to the 613 commands that are alliterated in the uh, the Old Testament. And, And they're waiting for Jesus to give the right answer. And so Jesus reaches all the way back into the book of Leviticus and he says, listen, this is the most and first and greatest commandment that you would love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. In other words, with all of your energy and with all of your passion and with all of your thoughts and with all of your body in other words with your whole person you would love God so on Friday night when someone asks you to do something with your body that you say oh man I would love to do that but guess what I love God even more and so I'm going to love God with my body and I'm not going to participate in that don't don't just give God love on Sunday don't give God plumber love do you know what plumber love is Plumber love is where you just love someone when they fix something for you. <laughs> I, I got the plumber. I got plumber. We had two great plumbers in our church. I got them on speed dial. But when, the reason I call them is when something's broken. Listen, God will always meet you when you're broken, and you reject him, and you, you are broken. You're like, dear God, please, I need your help. He's right there. But go beyond that and learn to love God with everything that you've got all the time. Jesus said this is the best way to flourish as a human being. In fact, John in his letter that he wrote the uh, other part of the New Testament that's called 1 John, he said this. He said, God is love. Now note, he doesn't say love is God. God is love. So whatever you see in Jesus, his sacrificial love for people, that's the definition of love. Listen to what he says. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. When, when the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, listen, dear children, live a life of of love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. Learn to love. And then this is the the third thing, and this is maybe the hardest, is that you have to be in relationship with people and then not leave. In other words, you have to stay in the lab or you don't get the learning. But listen, everybody has a past. Everybody has been hurt. I I really think we would do a lot better job loving each other if we would take the time to understand someone's story and understand what they have been through that got them to where they are, and I think if we could understand what they have been through, we would be a lot more patient with people. Because like, oh, they've been through this and this, and I haven't been through that, but they haven't. Oh, okay. People need love. Listen, you can't, you can't love in isolation. Christianity is not a spiritual project where you go off by yourself, and you nurture this this private spirituality between you and God, and you're a, you're, a, you're a spiritual person, and you're all connected to the divine, and it, that's not Christianity. Christianity is, you know that God loves you, and that vertical love is translated into horizontal love. This is how First John goes on and writes it. He says, we love because he first loved us. Now notice what is in yellow right there. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a what? liar for whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love god whom they have not seen in other words if you think it's just this little hothouse thing i create with me and god and i don't give a crud about anybody else but myself and i'm on my own journey and i don't want them to mess up my journey you haven't gotten it yet the the love that comes from god is meant to flow out to the people around you so that you love them and you, listen listen You have to stay. You can't leave or you never get the learning from the lab. And if you up and leave because someone upsets you or you disagree with something, guess what? You never learn to love. And that's the thing that God's measuring. I'll end with a story and um, then I want to ask us to to do something together. Uh, There's a, a story. I don't know if it's a it's probably a, an apocryphal story, but it's, it's about these monks who lived in a monastery, and they were all 60, 70, 80, and they'd been together for a long time, and uh, they were wondering if their order was going to last. If you know anything about monasteries, you can still go today, and you can rent a room for the night, and uh, eat their meals, and do prayers with them, and read scripture with them. And Well, this was a, this was a monastery like that with these, these monks, and and, and they were wondering, you know, what's going to happen? We're all getting older, and some of us are starting to die, and, and this is all going to die when we die, unless we change. And how do we get younger, younger men in here to be part of the monastery? How do we, how do, we do that? How do we continue this? Well, one day they had a stranger come, one of those people that came for a visit, and the, the stranger left them with this really interesting message one day at the mealtime. He stood up and said, uh, the Messiah is among you. Now, all they knew was, here's uh, a crabby Larry and angry Bob and disgruntled Carl. That's when they saw each other, that's who they saw. And they said that, and it just kind of lodged in each of them, and, and they started to look at disgruntled Carl and say, he might, be the, he might be the Messiah? And they looked at angry Bob, and they're like, well, maybe... I mean, he can be, I mean, he can be kind of angry, but sometimes he's really kind. Maybe he is the Messiah. And so they, they changed how they treated each other. They started to actually love and respect one another. Because can, can I be honest with you for a second? What we're going to do today in, in the field from three to six is amazing. It's, it meets an incredible need, and I'm so proud of you for doing this. I, I'm so proud of you. But, but let me be honest. It's so easy to love somebody for three hours that you're never going to see again. It's not a problem. But to love the people that you disagree with and they do things you don't like, man, that's the test of love. And so these monks began to love one another. And when visitors would come, they, they started to remark on that. and say, wow, you, you really love one another. And over time, it changed the atmosphere so that when young men would come, they would go, I would love to be a part of something like this. And the way they loved each other changed everything and they had new, new converts who came and were a part of the monastery and they continued for another generation. Now listen, when... When Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, repent and do the things that you did at first, they actually did because what history shows is that Ephesus was one of the main centers of Christianity for the first 400 years. They, they did. They said, okay, well, we, we, oh, we got off track. We, we did some really good things, but we, we lost the main thing, which was love, and, and we're back on the track. We're, we're, we're on love. Could I, could I give us a 400-year vision I know that seems kind of dumb, but what if 400 years from now, if the Lord tarries, people look back on this period and they say, you know, there was this group of people in 2018 who they learned to love each other in a way that no one could even explain. It was otherworldly. And it became so attractive that everyone wanted to be a part of it. And Their kids, 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 and now I'm here today because of the love they showed each other. Because they took Jesus seriously, and they said, we're going to do all those other good things, but we're not going to let the main thing get lost. The main thing is the main thing, and it's to love God, and it's to love your neighbor. Because do you know know what Jesus said? When that person came and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said that, you know, we love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as you love yourself. Listen, this is the call for us as a church. Is that we'd be a church that loves. Let's be the most loving church in the region. Who wants to sign up for that? I do. I do. Yeah. Let's pray, all right? Would you stand with me? Uh, Thank you, Jesus, that you don't talk love, you uh, you don't talk a good game, you don't just say words, you put your life on the line, and you demonstrated your love by offering your life and your death on a cross. And then that, your life and your death was vindicated by your resurrection, so we have resurrection power to love in a different way. We have new life that comes from you, and so we say thank you. We admit, God, that it's easy to lose the main thing. It's easy to just go through the motions. It's easy to not love. It's easy to just skip over the people that are in front of us or ignore them because they don't agree with us in some way, shape, form, or fashion. We don't want to do that anymore. We want the main thing to be the main thing, our love for you, our love for the people around us. And so, God, make us, make us the most loving church in the region I, I, I confess, God, I don't even know all that that means, but m- make us that. Make us that. Uh, we want to we leave a legacy for the next generation and the generations to come because of the way we learn to love. So God, we're here in the laboratory, um, here to learn what you have to teach us. We submit to that and to your wisdom of putting us together in the church. And we say thank you for it. And all God's people who wanted all that God had to offer said, Amen. I'll leave you with a blessing. You're sent now to love God, to love people, to serve the world in his name. Hug someone, tell me you love them, see ya.